This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Hey there, No Wrong Answers listeners. This is your host, Kyle Palmer. This week's episode is actually a continuation of an episode we taped two weeks ago. You may remember, and you can also see in our podcast feed, that last week we posted an interview with Kathy Duffel. She's a high school journalism teacher in California who got into a bit of hot water recently, along with her student journalists, for publishing a story about a student who's pursuing a career in adult entertainment. It's a fascinating interview. If you haven't listened to it, I urge you to go back and do that. Well, the same group of teachers who participated in that interview, Luann Fox, Bakari Uku'u, and Susana Elizarraz, went on to actually talk about two more topics that same day. One of them, school discipline and why the general public appears to think teachers don't know what they're doing when it comes to discipline issues in class. And the second one, school segregation, why it seems to be getting worse and what teachers, if anything, can do about it. Both of those conversations are long and robust, and we thought they warranted their own separate pod. So here they are. I'll forego our normal introduction and get you right into the conversations with Luann, Bakari, and Susana. Enjoy, and we'll be back next week with what I guess you would call regularly scheduled programming. We got some interesting insight recently into how the public views the job teachers are doing specifically when it comes to how they handle discipline issues in class. A new Gallup poll shows the majority of Americans think teachers are unprepared to handle discipline issues. Specifically, 54% of the 1,000 randomly selected respondents said teachers were either unprepared or very unprepared. should also say the survey had a margin of error of 4%. But there were some other interesting findings in this survey as well about classroom discipline and what the public thinks should be done about discipline problems. Some of the results may be not what you're expecting. But first, this top-line conclusion, 54% of Americans think teachers are unprepared to handle discipline issues. For our teachers, what do you think that indicates about how people outside the class view teachers' handling of discipline? The thing that comes to my mind is the lack of trust. Right. There's a lack of trust between the community and teachers and a lack of trust between parents and teachers. Um, And I think that's a huge problem, obviously, because kids are spending 45, 50, 60 hours a week with us. And so I think they're that's that should be principle. That should be foundational for for parents to be able to trust their kids in in the not only care, but in the influence of another adult. Um, And so if. It just speaks to the lack of trust that there is there, and that's a scary thing. I think for me, I, I it makes me wonder, do they feel that educators are underprepared to deal with discipline because they think the discipline has gotten worse or, like, more severe and that we don't have the expertise to do it, or we're just mismanaging mm-hmm. uh, the discipline process in schools? I think those are two very different distinctions, um, especially when you see that the number one option for shifting in discipline is mental health um, resources. And so I think that I don't know if I read it as a trust issue, but more of an expertise and um, development or a skill gap than it is a uh, we don't believe that you know what you're doing. Uh, Well, to uh, Susanna's point, do the parents and families that you work with trust you and your colleagues to use 
appropriate, effective discipline uh, in class? Do you, do you feel like that relationship is is um, is one that's that's a great question? <laughs> I think that it varies, right? So I think there's multiple things that go into play when you think about community and stakeholder engagement, whether that's parents, families, uh, business um, sector, when they when we talk about trust and, and, and belief in schools. And I think that from my experience, our parents often distrust the system, but trust people in the system, right? And so that oftentimes that looks like frustration, I'm, I may be fussing or, or upset with you, but I recognize that you are a, a uh, individual in the system, so I'm upset with the system. And so I do think systemically, we, I mean, every piece of research will show that we have underserved um, minority and oppressed and marginalized communities, and that's the community in which I serve. And so I would say that there is a, a, a sentiment of distrust in that we have not done right by this population for so long. And so that comes up when we talk about discipline, particularly mm-hmm. when we think about school to prison pipeline. It's like, why are the students behaving in a way that is causing them to get kicked out of class, ultimately kicked out of school or, or suspended from school? And so parents don't want to see their kids out of school. Parents don't want to see their kids with undue consequences, especially if they feel like it is unjust. And so I think it's a matter of... But there's a difference with how they maybe approach the system and approach you as an individual. Right. And so I I think that oftentimes parents trust me, especially as a young black male who's in education, who has a very close proximity to our students. I think there's a greater degree of trust for me than it may be for colleagues who don't look like me or come from places like me. At the same time, even though I do have, they trust me, they recognize I'm still an agent of the system. And so sometimes their frustrations Sometimes their trust of me does not trump their frustrations with the system. Lou, it looks like you had something to say. It's it's hard because I think uh, we're supposed to be, when schools were established, we're supposed to be in loco parentis. In, a, in essence, we're mm-hmm. supposed to act like the parent. We are the parent, right, while um, <clears throat> the students are in our care. The issue is, is that we don't parent like everybody else parents. And so all these parents have some idea of what it's like to parent but they don't know what it's like to parent 30 kids at a, sh- at a shot, right? Because they're parenting just their own kids. And they're invested in their own kids. And we're supposed to be invested in all 30, all 160, uh, you know what I mean? All of them yeah. <laughs> at, at the same time. And it's like parents are, or I'm sorry, students, hello, teachers are set up to not be successful in that framework. Hmm. Uh, I do want to dig into some of this survey's other findings, um, and uh, Bakari actually started to kind of touch upon them. Uh, when asked to select from six potential solutions for classroom discipline problems, the most popular option that respondents selected, uh, with nearly 60% saying this would be very effective, was greater access to mental health services. The least popular option, with less than a quarter of respondents saying it would be very effective, stricter discipline practices like detentions and suspensions. Uh, Do you find it all encouraging that the respondents to this survey seem generally to not be supportive of harsher discipline and, in fact, appear to recognize the need, Bakari, as you said, of more mental health supports in schools, which is something our teachers on this podcast have pleaded um, for very frequently? I think it's to no surprise... Because I think every everybody should be a proponent for building relationships and mutual respect between youth and adults. Um, I think regardless of what your position is in the community, I think everyone could agree that for the most part we want to raise our youth and our kids in the right way or what we think, quote unquote, is the right way. Um, like Luann said, the right way looks different for everyone. But I think in general, 
our society and the public and the communities know that our kids are faced with a lot that they hold heavy onto, especially with social media and with them having access to a lot of bad news and a lot of hateful things that are happening in the world. So I think it's just an obvious thing to to know and want for our kids to be supported. It's just a matter of knowing the right way to do that in a way that we can all agree. So it sounds like you think that society or the general public or at least the, the general public that you interact with has a lot of empathy for or has some empathy for your kids. Do you think that, am I saying that right or uh, interpreting what you said right? I think that's a part of it. I also think that there was a quarter of people who said that there should be tougher, (laughs) right? You know? And so I think that quarter of the people who think there should be tougher um, discipline practices are more, come more from a traditional background, right? That like, well, what worked with me is just, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, what worked with me is just, is, was the belt or, mm. you know, um, and there's a, there, you know, there's a place for all of those thoughts and all of those opinions. But when it comes to, like, I think Bakari said, like, we are in a structured place. Like, we can't just choose how to discipline our kids. We follow a handbook and we follow, do you know what I mean? So, mm. I think that was Luann, actually. But. I don't. I don't. I think I would say it's a bit of a stretch to to say that I don't. And and I don't want to speak for you, Susanna, but I think that I think it's a stretch to say that the that the society at large has empathy for our kids. And I said mm-hmm. that. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, That's why I was like, eh, I think not really. Yeah, because that 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 does not feel true for me, at least, mm-hmm. in that. We say all these um, platitudes around what should and needs to happen in education, right. but we then don't put our money where mm-hmm. our mouth is, right? Mm-hmm. And so while majority of Americans in this survey want or suggest an increase in mental ser- mental health services, um, I'd wonder what that would look like if it actually started talking about If it means paying money. a higher levy on your taxes and right. to get more money yep. to schools. Exactly. We'll and that. so, like, I don't... And even just how we frame things in society. Again, I talk a lot about just, like, the media's patrol of our kids. And, like, I think that there there are certain indicators that would indicate empathy that we don't see and that we are often just criminalizing our students. And and so, I, I, yeah, I just, I wanted to be clear that I don't agree yeah. with the yeah. <laughs> empathy. Yeah. Yeah. You don't agree with empathy. We'll cut that out. <laughs> I, want, I want to talk about empathy, but not, yeah. not this minute. Okay, because yeah, I want to yeah. talk about something else. And this probably won't be very popular, but I, I've been thinking about how just throwing everything uh, at mental health and just being mm-hmm. and saying, well, mm-hmm. like if uh, like here's an issue, discipline, let's throw it at mental health. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think, again, super unpopular. Breaking the stigma around surrounding mental health has been a good thing. I think the fallout of that we have to allow has been like, well, if there's no stigma around it, then aren't we all mentally ill? And can't we just all like, instead of, instead of, I don't know, self-regulate, cope, learn how to deal with each other, we just go to somebody who will talk to us and tell and give us all kinds of attention so we can like name something that we're all sick about doing. And, and, and that, that becomes part of our identity Well, I'm mentally ill. So I, and there's no stigma around it anymore. So you teacher or students have to cope with me in a particular way, because here's this bubble around me, um, that we've now named. Um, yeah. again, I said unpopular, no, that, no. you know what well, I mean? It doesn't seem but, unpopular. I mean, you're getting snaps in the room. Well, so right. like I said, you know. uh, Susanna, what, what, what are you thinking? Because you seem to, that seemed to have resonated with you. I have had this conversation a lot with adults, in my life that that resort to the mental health 
card, I guess we can call it. And yeah. this is not to downplay that that mental health is a, is a real issue, and it it's a very real issue for the people dealing with mental health issues, right? But I think our kids have even picked up on well, I can just go to. Well, I'm X, Y, Z. I feel this way. And so then I can treat people however I want. I mean, I've had a situation like that this year where a student of mine got caught in a lie and it was 100 percent a lie. Um, and so what she did was she she began to have an episode and, and then went straight to, well, I have anxiety and I, you know, and so I sent her to the nurse because I didn't want to be liable for her physical right. being because she was hyperventilating. Basically, when speaking to the community of people who came around this issue, it, it was something that she was commonly doing. You know, when she got caught in lies or was legitimately getting ready to face some consequences, you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. so I've actually noticed an uptick of students using trigger words in the midst of like these discipline or consequence conversations in an effort to avoid mm-hmm. being accountable for their tri- actions. Like, trigger yep. words like like indicating they're going to self harm or uh, they have depression or like things that would require us to like take a different path in an effort to make sure that we investigate and like do our due diligence. And you sure think these are these are strategic uses of oh, these words that mm-hmm. are meant to that are 100%. not necessarily yeah. 100 percent. Because I mean obviously especially in the middle school they, they yeah. they're not strategic enough to actually play. it's like you can't wait till you do something then all of a sudden now you're in the vice principal's office oh now you want to self-harm because So what's the been, <laughs> what's the response then as a teacher because obviously you you need to take these instances um, seriously um, because there are uh, legal ramifications if you don't. But at, this, but at the same time, you all are touching upon um, something that seems to be in increasingly an issue when, when dealing with... And, and again, this conversation started about discipline, but yeah. I mean, there was a... There, there was a a big part of this survey was about how, uh, you know, the idea of mental health and mental health supports has become kind of buzzy, popular, right. something to talk well, about and think about. An increase of mental health services, I think, is completely warranted. And and when you said earlier that's been a thing that, that we've echoed, I, that's absolutely accurate. But I think ringing that mental health bell has also been a thing that's, that's occurring, and uh, we can't ignore that phenomenon. Well, I think— and to push that further, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, I, I think we just have to build more nuance into that conversation. And that yes. when we talk about, like you said, the self, uh, the self-regulation and the coping skill, like that is part of like uh, growing up. Gr- it yeah. is immature, yeah. but it's also part of like dealing with your mental health issues. So when you do have anxiety, you have steps that you can take to self-regulate, so that you can calm down and de-escalate. And so I think that. That's the piece that we don't hear a lot about. Like, we just catch all with the mental health. But if we had more professionals in the schools who could actually do lessons on what it looks like to have anxiety, what it looks like to cope with depression or to, like, to get the proper um, supports you need, like, that's the piece that's missing. Right now, we've just introduced the or tried to destigmatize mental health, and so everyone's using it. But we haven't educated ourselves and our students around what that actually means. Is that what you were getting at, Luann, when you, brought, when you started to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I really, yeah, I really think so. Are you dealing? I mean, like with the example that Susanna gave. I mean, are you? Oh that, yeah, Does that definitely. sound familiar to you? I mean, yeah, and it. Well, here's the thing, though. It's going to take uh, kids away from academic time. The more they're going to be following up on uh, learning about themselves as mental health. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say practitioners, but I'm people who need to investigate their own mental health and they need to like learn how to regulate. So that really is going to take away from them learning some of the, the the content and the skills that they're going to need to kind of like be these productive citizens that we all dream that they will be. Mm, I think I push back on that. I think that 
if we think about like, teaching the whole child, right, a kid who's struggling with these things are not prepared to learn 2 plus 2 or um, Pythagorean's theorem if they are not in a space where they can receive that. And so I think it's, it's critical to the work that we do that kids are ready to learn, and that's part of being ready to learn is having those things in check. That is true. But I think that uh, that it depends on the individual kid because I could see a kid who say, I don't know, had a fight with his or her best friend or break up with his or her boyfriend. Um, Maybe that kid is better served by not being in the English class because they're not going to learn any English anyway because they're so focused on that. Or maybe that kid could be better served by settling down and focusing on something that you can be successful with. that, that will help you down the road. So I think it's an individual. I think the hard part about that for us teachers is that we're, we we wear so many hats when a lot of teachers weren't prepared to wear them all, right? And I think the way that I was educated in college, I was very prepared for that, and I grew up in the neighborhood where I teach and everything. So I, I really am familiar with the issues that arise. However, I don't think most teachers are. Um, and I think that that is, I mean, Think about it, though. Those are teenage issues. Everyone has had a breakup with a boyfriend some point in high school or with a girlfriend or a fight with a best friend or parents who are divorcing. You know, Mm -hmm. these are issues that our kids need support and help with. Um, And unfortunately, me as a teacher, a lot of the time I find myself being the person to handle them on my lunch break or before school or after school is a time when when maybe I gather with a group of people or with a person one on one and say, like, are there, you know, resources that you need that I can provide for you or that I can talk to your parents about? But that's not something that a lot of teachers, number one, are willing to do. And number two, are even prepared to do. Right. So. And also, I mean, also attacking those issues as, as mental health issues might also right. be not. I don't, not I mean, I mean, I'm not qualified yeah. to do that, you know. I just remember back in the days when the nuns just beat, they just beat you when, I mean, I'm old and I'm older around the table. And I just remember when the video games kind of came out for the first time and then, and you know, like somebody be playing in the back of the room and then I'd just smack you. Luann and her nuns. Yes. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. San Francisco's citywide student lottery for elementary schools was once considered a national model for how big city school systems can try to integrate their campuses. The city's choice-based model has long been seen as a less heavy-handed approach to desegregation than more controversial policies like mandatory busing and the redrawing of school boundaries. But according to a new report from the New York Times, levels of segregation in San Francisco schools are now higher than they were in the early 1990s before the lottery started. The report goes on to show how more affluent, often white families are still able to use the system to their advantage over poorer families of color. It's all led the head of San Francisco's Board of Education to declare, our system is broken. We've inadvertently made the schools more segregated. Increasingly, segregated schools are a worrying trend in many cities, including the metro area of Kansas City, where all of our teachers on this episode teach. So if San Francisco, a bastion of do-gooder liberals and progressive policies can't effectively desegregate at schools is there hope for any other cities and is desegregation even a feasible or worthy goal anymore what do you think your schools in your district and surrounding districts um, may learn from this story 
I think my opinion and experience with this conversation around integration may be different from uh, the masses in that I don't believe that integration should be our goal. Mm -hmm. um, I think that from the beginning of Brown versus Board of Education and that decision, it was framed in a way that was very deficit-based thinking of uh, particularly black students, but mm -hmm. uh, students of color, and that it it frames it in a way that basically says the only way that minority kids, uh, kids of color, can get a sufficient education is if they're sitting next to a white kid, um, which is very problematic because all that really means is that we're not going to give you the resources necessary to actually have an effective school system if you don't have white kids there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that until we shift the conversation from mm -hmm. integration to resource allocation, then we won't actually see changes because ultimately it should not require white kids sitting next to black and brown children for them to get a quality education. So if I'm mm -hmm. hearing what you're saying correctly, you don't you wouldn't necessarily mind if schools remain as uh, racially isolated and segregated as they are now if all of them got the same amount of resources. And in addition to a shifting of curriculum, right? So I do think there is positive and a there is positivity and necessity in diversity. And so I'm I don't want to I don't want to be misheard I, that I don't I'm not in favor of diversity. I'm very much in favor of diversity, but I'm not in favor of forced diversity, mm -hmm. and I'm not in favor of kids being underserved just because they don't have white kids sitting next to them. And so until we separate resources from whiteness, then we won't see changes happen in our schools. And that's what that's what integration is about. Yeah. It's about in order to own the only way that we know to get resources for these other kids is by bringing white kids along uh, to sit next to them. And if we can't, we just need to separate that conversation and talk about the problem. The problem is not that black kids weren't learning because they were learning at very high levels before segregation. The problem was they had old textbooks. They had dilapidated buildings mm -hmm. and their teachers were underpaid. And so I think that was the problem. Mm -hmm. And so until we Again, talk about the resource allocation, the curriculum that we put in front of kids, the systems in which we're funding them through. Integration won't solve that. And we can't force folks to, as we see time and time again, we can't force people to, to be in neighborhoods and schools that they don't want to yeah. be in. Uh, Susanna or uh, Luann? Well, one. I just want to say Macari said everything that I think and far better than I could ever say. So snaps to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, moving on then. Yeah, he's, like, he's got it. I mean, like, I think he's got it. So, I mean, I was my, my next question was going to be, so um, direct, I mean, more direct policies like mandatory busing, redrawing school district boundaries. These, these are things that, I mean, Bakari, you're shaking your head now. I mean, these are, it does not get at the fundamental problem of um, unevenly distributed resources. I mean, because ultimately we know that black and brown children can learn. Like, they... And they can learn at very high levels when they're given the opportunity and access to do so. The only reason they haven't is because they have not gotten those ac the access. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, what, make, what this makes me think about is that this is just a bigger problem than education, right? It's not just an education problem. So, for example, um, the, the redlining, right, and, and the real estate um, system. And for years and years and years, we all know about redlining, right? Um, but I think that's one of the underlying issues here, um, that the houses near our schools that are mostly populated by black and brown students are vacant, are, you know, 
there are there's criminal activity happening in them around them um and so what happens is taxes is what what a lot of what pays to our, into mm-hmm. our schools right and so a lot those houses being vacant means that those tax dollars aren't going into our schools right um and my husband and I were having this conversation actually earlier today about how then that means for me that the mayoral um, election in is Kansas City in that we're Kansas having City. right now. Yeah, yeah. Yes, is very important because they, even though the city government, I had a comment um, recently, the city government has nothing to do with education. Well, it has <laughs> to do sure with how resources are getting to those community centers. It has to do with the crime rates, you know, in our cities and around our schools. It has to do with the fact that our homes are vacant, every other house. Particularly, corporations get tax incentives. Exactly, exactly. And so we have to understand as a city and as a society that every part of the government plays a role in our education. And so, of course, integration and segregation is a huge um, conversation in this. However, we as teachers or as advocates for our kids need to be the revolutionaries who are voting, who are asking the difficult questions and saying, Hey, so what are you going to do about the fact that 20% of the houses, or, you know, that's a made up number, but a huge percent of the houses in the zip code is, are vacant. For example, the, the zip code in which I live in is one of the top five zip codes where the life expectancy is the shortest in Kansas City. And we are right down the street from four, three elementary schools and a high school. You know what I mean? Like, that is a that is a, one of the underlying issues that gets ignored a lot of the time. So is having a conversation about segregation, um, and it has been a lot recently. I mean, we even I mean, we've had this topic on this podcast frequently. I, I think back to a time last year when we talked about the um, you know the growing resegregation of schools in the South, where um, white districts are starting to um, secede from a larger majority black districts in the South. Is a, a conversation about segregation the wrong conversation then to be having? Is that the wrong focus? Um, if you're, if for for educators um, who are mindful and worried about, um, uh, it might I, be. It, it, it'd be. I think it would be. We'd better serve if the conversation. You know, to echo what Bakari is saying. Basically, would come down to value that everybody is valued. Mm-hmm. Like bl- black students are valued, brown students are valued, and and where there are two or three are gathered, and you know, for education's sake, I mean, whoever they need to get the same kind of resources that anybody else is getting, um, for them to be able to 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 enact their best selves. Um, but what Bakari said a little earlier, like just dropped a bunch of thoughts into my head, so I have to think about it for a little while too. But, um. I think that our kids, and it was, I know the conversation might go here, but our kids are realizing the lack of value Mm -hmm. that is put into them, Mm. right? And so as a kid who, who did grow up in those conditions, right, where it's like there's a lot less hope for me than there is for someone right across the state line or there is for someone in this county instead of here, um, a lot of our kids that are impressionable, by other people that maybe aren't the best um, influences are going to take that and say, okay, so then what are my other options here? Because education isn't one of them, right? Mm -hmm. And so it takes teachers being the advocates and the voice for our kids um, and saying, this is is possible. And one of the ways to do that is representation. Um, You know, as a Latina, being in, in the classroom as a person of color and saying, 
I am a first generation. Um, you see other pe- teachers of color. Um, I think that's another part of the conversation, too, is how much of our teaching population is majority white. Indeed. Right? And I hear yeah. it all the time from our kids. Like, and, and I think oftentimes we just kind of minimize and just overlook or ignore when they make comments like, y'all don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, this doesn't matter. This is boring. Like, these are things that are, that's their way of articulating this feeling that I don't feel valued in this space. I don't feel centered. Amen. I don't feel like you actually are here for me. And it, it's very problematic if a kid feels that way and they go 13 years of education feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And I think until we start to see that shift, th- that that's not because they're not sitting next to white kids. That's because they're sitting in front of teachers who don't care or sitting in front of textbooks that don't re- represent their perspectives or have their um, have people in them that look like them in positive ways. And they don't see that representation across their school campus. Right. And so I think those pieces are what needs to shift. I could care less about how many white kids, how many black mm-hmm. kids, how many Asian or Hispanic kids are in one building. I care mm-hmm. more about what type of quality education and what type of resources are being there for those students who are there. Because when a kid kid is looking at a dirty textbook and dirty building mm-hmm. and, and, and it being dilapidated, how can they feel good about themselves if they're like, I'm being put in an environment that's not that can't be kept up? And when, and when they know that that's not the same for kids who don't look like them. So that's the Boom. other piece. It's not just that we're getting this. It's like we know that this is not the only way. Like there wouldn't, this is not the standard for all kids. Right. It's for kids who look like us. Well, in that reality, I think it's pretty stark in Kansas City. It's probably stark in a lot of cities. But in Kansas City, the, mm-hmm. the boundaries, um, both real, like state line, and um, I guess more symbolic but still very real, truced, um, mm-hmm. are kids in this area – they're aware of that. Very I mean, they, yeah. they can they can see across the other side of the fence or the other side of the road, yep. uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, how does that manifest itself? How does that? How do you see that play out in your schools? You hear them make comments about your school versus other schools, and uh, you hear teachers suggesting that maybe handpicking or cherry picking students who you should really consider applying to this school or you should really consider going here. That's one of the most frustrating conversations I, I have to engage in because. When we try to cherry pick our best and brightest, if you will, to go other places, what that tells the other students who are hearing the same conversation is, again, you don't matter because this is a throwaway school. So, you know, like referencing going to another district or going to a a school within the district that you're working that is more of a like uh, a a, a signature school, a a school that has a better reputation. Right. So I will say that um, to not speak about maybe. Um, desegregation within districts as much, what might be a better approach is something that I think we're trying to do at a grassroots level in Kansas City. And I know um, the the Kansas City Storytellers um, with the Greater Kansas City Writing Project is one such... Um, this is a group you're a part of, yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's one such enterprise where you're, you're getting kids from different districts and you're putting them together for uh, like a common task, right? You need to tell stories that are true about your life. And so you're getting kids from all across the spectrum being able to do that. When, when we have um, in our community like um, Louder Than a Bomb and Poetry Slams where you're getting certain districts uh, with each other, you see affluent districts with uh, urban districts. And, and, and what, what's amazing is that you're getting these kids going like, oh, there really is another way to live. 
And, 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 and I'm looking at these kids who are my age and we have some things in common, but we never knew that. And now we're seeing each other and we're looking at like, it puts our differences in starker relief. And perhaps we can appreciate them more because we're all trying to do the poetry slam together, or we're all trying to tell stories together. We're all trying to do a thing together and we can appreciate each other more. And that seems to have a positive effect. And our kids are very open to that. So I, I teach sixth grade, um, but we have conversations when they come up authentically, and they do. They come up authentically where I've had conversations with my classes about the school-to-prison pipeline. And I've had conversations with my kids about voter turnout or um, the fact that 50% of Latinos drop out of college after the first semester. Um, those kind of statistics and, and that kind of research has a place in the classroom, and our kids are very welcoming to those conversations. And I think it's it's inspiring but sad when when kids that light bulb opens up and they're like whoa like I knew that was an issue I just didn't have a name for it right and our kids who are 12 13 11 you know are willing to have those conversations um and take the, take it away to then say well maybe this is a space for me you know maybe this is a place for me if there are teachers that number one recognize it and number two are being advocates against a a system that's against me some of the time. Um, I was going to ask um, if segregation felt like too big of a problem for you to really have any say in as an individual teacher. A lot of this conversation has been focused not necessarily on segregation per se, but on unequal distribution of resources. That almost strikes me as a bigger problem <laughs> um, than any segregation. Um, so it, for teachers listening to this, um, what... Whether they teach in a, uh, regardless of where they teach at, um, and, and their student body and the makeup of their student body, um, if that's the question uh, um, we're talking about, allocation of resources across districts and what can be done. I mean, what what, what should be what, what should a teacher be going into their job thinking of? If you can't integrate the school building, you can integrate the curriculum, right? And I think that that's the first step when you're talking about, like, breaking down barriers and getting beyond the homogenous schools and that people need to be exposed to multiple perspectives and especially perspectives that may differ from their own uh, lived experiences. So I think it's very important that we embed... a diversity of perspectives and and narratives into our curriculum, and that we get past this whitewashed narrative in our histories and in, in our and centering whiteness in our conversations. And that can be done anywhere. And that can be done anywhere by anyone. And so I think that's a a, a, a lower lift. I mean, it's a it's a challenge in and of itself to like break down your own biases as you go through that. But I think that's accessible regardless of the district, regardless of the type of school or type of student body that you're serving. And it's also critical amongst all that that's a universal universal need, I think, in every uh, context. I would also say that the other part of that, when we're talking about particularly oppressed and marginalized communities, historically oppressed and marginalized communities, providing more opportunity and access uh, to opportunities that burst their bubbles, that they give them opportunities to get outside of the norms of their five-mile radius from home, like actually show them pathways to what other options are out there in life would be Mm -hmm. my two that come to mind. I think also um, having the students realize their capability, um, right? And so that goes back to what Bakari was saying about when kids do make comments like, well, you guys don't care or like no one cares about this school. This school is this or this school is that um, is then saying, okay, so then what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? You know, Um, 
And that goes into teaching them about voting and teaching them about um, revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many revolutionaries in our history as a country. And in each demographic, there are so many revolutionaries. So as a Latina, there are people that I think of in my culture right now that are revolutionaries for our country that they're seeing on TV. Right. And then um, making them realize that that's something they're capable of, too. Now, I know that then that means, well, I need to take more time out of my day. But there's so many things, ways to integrate those kind of topics into our curriculums um, where if I'm an English teacher, I'm reading diverse um, authors, right? And I'm bringing in the underlying messages of these, because a lot of diverse authors do allude to all of mm-hmm. these issues that we're talking mm-hmm. about. So if you allow that to be have to be a space in your classroom. Well, and what that ultimately gets to, like this critical thinking, like we talk a lot about being 21st century learners and like being a, 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 a global citizen. Like these are themes that by doing those type of uh, activities and, and making those type of instructional moves that you're preparing your kids better to actually serve humanity as a whole and like to have a better, well-rounded understanding of, of what their their impact in this world could be. Well, before we get to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. We have one of our first comprehensive looks at the effect of the Common Core on student achievement, and it doesn't necessarily look good for supporters of those learning standards. A federally funded study published recently concludes that states which altered their learning standards most dramatically over the last decade in order to align with Common Core actually saw their fourth grade reading and math scores go down slightly. One of the study's lead authors called the results unexpected and a little troubling. Even as teachers continue to walk out and protest in some states, it is teacher strikes across Washington state last year that are at the heart of new disputes over district budgets. For instance, the superintendent of Puyallup Public Schools near Seattle is warning that hundreds of employees there will be laid off in coming months to make up for the increased cost of a new teacher contract negotiated during a strike last year. Teachers in Puyallup and a dozen other districts in Washington state struck in the fall demanding higher wages against the state legislature um, after the state legislature boosted K-12 school spending by $2 billion. We should say teacher labor leaders say administrators are lying about the dire condition of their budgets and are trying to drive a wedge Mm -hmm. between teachers. And four northern Virginia school districts have joined forces to file a friend of the court brief in federal court in support of the rights of transgender students. This brief comes in the case of Gavin Grimm, a trans student whose years-long fight to use the boys' bathroom at his Virginia high school made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Grimm's case has been remanded to a lower court since the Trump administration rescinded Obama-era guidance, which encouraged schools to allow students to use bathrooms matching their gender identity. Those are some of the other education stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Luann, what are your kids into? Well, my particular kids are um, 
Uh, I teach AP, so they're getting ready for the 10 days to two weeks of AP tests. Right? Oh so that season is happening So in, in the, the different disciplines. But uh, alternatively, they're into the app TikTok. Oh, the TikTok app. This yeah, is kind of like the new Vine. Yep. Right? It's like the, you, yep. you film yourself, make videos, really short. Right. Music. It's all music. Yeah. They yes. love it. They love TikTok. Mm-hmm. Is that distracting from their... Well, of course, everything distracts them. <laughs> Luann, I feel like I need to. I feel like you need to share with our audience what you're talking about before before we came on the air. Your, Your cell, cell phone, phone home is a cell phone apartment home <laughs> where the rent is colon your undivided attention. <laughs> Did you talk about this last week on Kids These Days? No, I didn't. Okay, I talked yeah. about it with you, but okay. anyway, um, but yeah. This is, you you okay? You have created an apartment. You you created an apartment home. It was god awful looking too. In your classroom, yes, for your students to drop off their cell phones when they come to class because you kind of reached a frustration breaking point with how much they were distracted by their phones. Yes, and now it has taken on a life of its own. It's taken on a <laughs> life of its own. Absolutely. And the kids do it and the kids uh, peer pressure to have each remind each other to put their phones in there and now they're leaving cute little notes for each other like last week somebody wanted to evict somebody and they served up an eviction notice um, and they put their little post-it note on there on the little cubby and so somebody says I don't know why I have an eviction notice because I've always paid my rent in my undivided attention <laughs> and before 3 o'clock on Friday they like ripped up the eviction notice and then a random other kid says uh, Miss Fox is this how it works in real life do you just, do you just <laughs> rip up the eviction notice no if you don't uh, want no. to get, or whatever uh, but I mean yeah so they, you were saying you're, you're, and your it. kids have like are giving their phones blankets yeah they are they're going to make little blankets and little <laughs> little pillows and caps and everything okay. for them in the home I just thought everyone should know about that okay thank you <laughs> but you say it's working it's working they're I mean they're more focused absolutely because they don't have their phones yeah awesome. okay Susana what are your kids into hi yi yi when when I was trying to think of something it's hard to think of something two weeks in a row, I feel like. I, I'm just going to say map testing. I mean, I know it's not the cool thing for them to be into, but they really are taking it seriously. This is the state tests. Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm sorry. This is the state test. Um, they are taking it seriously, and I think it is partially due to me because, I oh. mean, and to their teachers, obviously, yeah, yeah, because yeah, we're yeah. like, hey, you know, show what you know. You know, you've worked so hard this year. Make it worth all those times. And we sat and had a conversation and I told them in college all the struggles that I had, you know, financially and with my family and everything. And I was like, it's worth it now because I have my college degree. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, remember all those times you wanted to fall asleep and Miss Ellie didn't let you? And I was like, wake up, wake up, wake up. And you really hated me at the moment. Well, do well on your test because (laughs) that's why I wanted you to be up. Right. And I know that's kind of kind of a dumb one, but they really are. They're into their testing right now. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Can always be um, tension filled yes. those testing weeks. Yes, Bakari. My kids this? are into a, an app called Dub Smash. Um, it's like a music app, but they do dancing. Like it's like I don't know. I I just continue to see and have to stop students. So, I mean, from the hallway to the restrooms. We also started doing recess this week for map testing, which is our state test. Um, uh, cool. And so they get recess in middle school, and that's you know a a big deal for them. Yes. And so they're doing recess and dub smash are the two things. What is like the, uh, so how does dub smash work? What's the, uh, like they set the phone up and like they, um, so they can see themselves with, I guess, the front facing camera and they have like a group of people who do this choreographed dance and they always try to record it. So they like lean it up against the wall or mm-hmm. something or get it propped up so then they, they step away from it and then they can yep. perform. Oh, wow. It sounds very intricate. It, it is. <laughs> 
Uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, uh, Luann Fox, Susana Elisa Raraz, and Bakari Akuu. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids. Are you going to do it together? And remember, kids. Be, be nice, nice to, to your, your teachers. teachers. <laughs> that was a little... We never did it in unison before. Okay. Well, well, no. The, the times that Luann is on, she 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 wants to do it in unison. So anytime she's been on, gotcha. So one more time. It. Sure. And remember, kids, be, be nice, nice to, to your, your teachers. teachers. There we go. Okay. <laughs>